Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and today we have a special episode for you. It's the end of the year. It's the end of 2017. And so what we're going to do is we're going to compile a bunch of our favorite answers to many of our favorite questions from many of our favorite episodes throughout the year. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list of all of our favorite episodes, but we think we have some good answers to some good questions throughout this episode. We wanted to give that to you as a year-end gift so you can start your new year off right. Speaking of the new year, the minimalists are going to be doing something different in 2018 with our social media and we're going to be writing about that over at the blog, over at theminimalists.com. If you head over there, you sign up for our email newsletter, you'll be the first to receive new essays and podcast show notes and minimalism news and all of our tour dates. But I'm also going to write an essay about how we're going to use social media more intentionally in 2018. And in fact, we're going to be taking a month-long break from social media in January 2018 and then hopping back on in a much different way. And we'll explain that. On future podcasts, we can have some discussions about that, but the essays, we're actually going to do two essays. One's going to talk about why we're taking the break, and then the other one is going to talk about how we are using social media differently. And maybe you can find a few ingredients from our recipe that you can apply to use social media more intentionally in 2018 yourself. All right, let's, uh, oh, before we dive into this episode, we are headed to a few places uh, early 2018, we're going to be in Las Vegas, uh, January 14th at the House of Blues, and that's a charity event to help out the Las Vegas Victims Fund after that terrible tragedy that happened uh, earlier this year. We're trying to help out. We can't change the world together, but we can at least help out to the best of our ability. And then in March 2018, we're headed to Australia and New Zealand. You can find tickets to all of our live events over at lessisnow.com. It's the Less Is Now Tour. We give an in-depth talk about minimalism. We record a live version of the podcast. We answer a bunch of your questions along the way. All right, let's dive into this best of episode. The first clip you're going to hear is from podcast episode number 52. This episode was called Stress. Um, I am a teacher, and um, I used to teach third grade last year, and I made the big transition to teach eighth grade this year as a literacy teacher. Um, Currently, I have about 120 students, and there are many times, probably about twice a week um, or every other week, I have to grade 120 papers, and each paper is about four to five pages, and I can't do that during my work day, um, and, you know, I don't know if I can go another year. It was very stressful for me. I didn't find it in enjoying. Um, I... I'm currently on the lookout for another job, and if I don't get another job, then I will have to go another year with grading that many papers, and that went into my weekend and went, um, you know, after school, so I really lost a lot of time, and I'm wondering if you guys think that it's worth it um, to stick with this job. Um, I am hoping to get a younger grade. I really enjoy that. I find that that is my forte. Um, but if I don't, um, I'm going to have to manage it. So I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Do you think that that is a job that um, I should stay with, 
or uh, and like if I do stay with it, how can I manage that? Wow, Tasha, that is. <laughs> Josh and I were talking about this as we were listening to the question. Um, I said, "Man, Josh, it's like she has to read a novel a, a week." Uh huh. And then you were like, "It's a really crappy novel, though." Right, right, because it's a bunch of fourth graders, which. You know, I'm sure some of the papers are endearing, but They're yeah, eighth graders or eighth graders. Sorry, yeah, yeah. she wants to go like down to like fourth, yeah, younger, she, she younger. She was the third before, right? Yeah. So Tasha, um, you know, the so her first question that stands out is: Is it worth it to hang on to this job? Um, I need to to know a little bit more information to uh, answer that, but I, I guess here's what I'll say: um, Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes, it is absolutely worth it if this is the only way you have to pay your bills right now. Like if you're going to go bankrupt, uh, you know, by not having, uh, you know, what, what is the average American? How, how many months away? How many paychecks away are they from bankruptcy? Two. Okay. So I hope you're not, you know, f- fall into that average. Yeah. Um, but if this is the only job you have and yes, if you don't have a job for four months, you're going to go bankrupt, then yes, it absolutely is worth it to, to hang on. Right. Now, if you are in a position where you can find a lower grade to go to and you could do something that aligns more with your values and beliefs, then no, it is absolutely not worth uh, hanging on to this job. I really hope that you get that job that uh, you just went out for. But, but yeah, at the end of the day, um, pay your bills. Uh, make sure that those are uh, that you get food on your table, essentially. And then I was going to say, too, you know, there's no harm with, with all the paperwork and stuff that you have. I don't think there's any harm to go to someone, uh, a, a superior, your boss or, you know, someone else who has authority and and tell them, like, hey, look, this is an unbelievable amount of work that I have to do each week, and it's not reasonable. I need to either have less students or I need to have, you know, uh, uh, someone to help assist me. Or maybe if, if somehow we could squeeze in, um, you know, a, a few hours a week somewhere uh, during work hours for me to get these papers done. But I don't think that's an unreasonable ask. I know when I was managing a lot of people, uh, I respected people who came to me and they're like, hey, my job's too hard and here's why. And sometimes I would look at them and be like, I'm sorry, this is your job. Uh, continue to do what you, you're doing. Or uh, maybe they bring up a good point and, or, and enough people would say something to me and I'd be like, you know what? Something does need to be looked at. But I never looked down on anyone for, for bringing that up. I, I think that there are certainly those types of bosses out there. Um, if you're working for one of those bosses, I don't care what they're willing to negotiate with you. Then get out of there because I would never work for someone who would look down on me for asking uh, something like right. that. Right. And, and, and so what, you're, what she said is she may not have that much control over the curriculum. But what you're saying is – is there a way you can take back some control right. of, of that curriculum so that you're grading fewer papers or you find a way to do it more effectively? Because right now, Ryan, she, she doesn't find it very meaningful. She doesn't find this work to be meaningful at all. And there are basically three reasons. What, what's the name of that book? Um, I'm blanking on it. If it comes to me, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back. I think it's called Drive. I've talked about it before. Oh, yeah. there, 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 are three, there are three reasons that we, that we, that we feel compelled to do work and, and money is generally not one of them. Now, granted, we all have to pay the bills. So, so if you can earn enough money to get that discussion off the table, a a five thousand dollar raise may not be the the, the deal breaker. You're not going to go take a, a a job you absolutely hate for an extra five thousand dollars and leave a job that you love in, in order to to you know, just make a little bit extra money for whatever reason. And so, there are three things. One is mastery. 
Uh, one is uh, 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 meaning, so purpose-driven work in, in some way. And, and the, other, the third point is I'm feeling like Rick Perry right now. Um, not remember. Just keep Oops. saying um. Just fill fill the blank space with the ums. That's what uh, I do. Department of Energy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, no, so so it is uh, mastery. Oh, autonomy and, and purpose. Right. So right now you probably have mastery, although you're you're learning a lot more because you move from grade three to grade eight. So you're actually growing through that. So that's part of the mastery process. Autonomy. Yeah, you're by yourself in charge of a large group of children. Uh, every day. So you've got the autonomy, but you don't have the purpose in what you're doing. And you might not ever find 120 papers a week uh, meaningful. And, and that's okay if everything else feels meaningful, but it doesn't seem to me like it does for you. I can talk to you about a couple different approaches. I was talking to my partner about this uh, voicemail uh, last night. So she she used to teach at the university a health class. I know some of her students listen to this because they, they will tweet me occasionally. But uh, uh, I know she had to grade papers, not 120 papers a week, but she had to grade a lot of papers. And she found it, she said, well, and I don't enjoy doing this at all. How can I find a way to make this more enjoyable? She would do it in the bathtub. So she's like, at least I'm going to do something that's enjoyable while I'm doing this and find a way to make it if not meaningful, at least a little bit more enjoyable while, while I'm doing it. And I can tell you my approach. So I, I teach that writing class, and I have uh, there's a final assignment at the end of the four-week writing class that people have to turn in, and I have to, to grade all of those, but I get some help on, on, on those as well. So I have two very talented writers. Uh, Sean Halleck helps me out with, with the class overall, and then Chase Knight, who is a very talented novelist, and they'll both give me their notes on the papers. And so I still have final say and final approval on, on anything that I want to to communicate with, with the student. But it, what it does is it gives me the opportunity to see someone else's perspective, and I grow in that process as well. So is there a teacher's assistant, or is there some way that you can get another student to help you with part of that that is within the, the bounds of your authority there Dude, at, at your school? That is genius. What, like a, what a Tim Ferriss-esque approach, like outsourcing someone to grade her papers. I don't know if that's like, you know, illegal or not. You know, I don't know what her contract says. Sure. But um, yeah, if that's a possibility, like that's, that is definitely plausible. Because, you know, I know there is some, uh, you know, college, writing college student out there who would be willing to, you know, grade papers for, you know, 50 bucks or so, you know, something that is, uh, uh, you know, not, not a, a cheap sum of money, but something that would be reasonable. I'm sure that you know, she could find. Yeah. And, and I, I'm willing to pay. So I make less money from my writing class because I get help with this, but mm-hmm. I also get another perspective and it helps me grow as well. Right. When I see the other feedback that other people have, it helps me provide better feedback in the future as well. So that, that may help you grow. So you also asked about, you know, should I pursue a, another job? Yes. I, I think ultimately you, you need to pursue a different job. And it sounds to me like eighth grade is not the perfect fit for you. I, I think of my, my former spouse, Carrie, she is an eighth grade teacher and loves teaching eighth grade. Grade. I remember one year she was needed to move up to ninth grade, and she did it uh, back when we were married, and she absolutely hated it. Just that one year difference. Mm. And, and now, obviously, kids these days. <laughs> obviously, that one year difference makes a big difference because of uh, puberty and, and and all the changes. But 
She loves eighth grade, hated ninth grade. And so it may be that, Tasha, yeah, you need to find a way to get back to if third grade is right for you or what is right for you. You need to get some clarity on what you want here. And so you need to start asking some really powerful questions. What is my outcome, right? And why do I want that outcome? It can't be that you just want to switch over to third grade because you're going to grade fewer papers because you need to find this meaningful, right? It's not, you don't want to be running from one thing. You want to be running to wherever you are going. And I think you're going to experience less stress along the way if and only if you're running towards something you want to do. So whether that's third grade, fourth grade, first grade, whatever, or a completely different career outside of teaching, get really clear about what you want your what you want your outcome to be. I think that is the the key to this whole her whole question, man, is to come up with a plan. Yes. To to find the light at the end of the tunnel and figure out what what you are running towards. Because I know when we're in the corporate world when we were writing The Minimalists, I was going to school and we were working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a week. It was miserable. Mm-hmm. And we kept that up for about a year. Now, you know, writing for The Minimalist was a bit of an outlet. Uh, so, you know, maybe that was more entertainment than it was, uh, you know, work. But there were But it cert- felt meaningful. Yeah, it was a lot more meaningful. But there were certainly a, a lot of times where I was like writing an essay. I'm like, gosh, I really just want to like sit and watch TV right now. I don't want to do this. So I still had to drudge through that drudgery a little bit. Yes. Um, but it wasn't. A, it was not a sustainable work week for me. School, uh, work, and uh, writing for the minimalists. I knew it was not sustainable. But I did know that if I could do that for a short enough period of time, you know, a year is kind of what I had uh, committed to. Um, I, I knew that I could go somewhere else after that year. But that's my whole point. Is that yes? I put myself into into this unsustainable work situation temporarily. I temporarily deprive myself, which Josh and I talk a lot about in a lot of different ways. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the outlook I would recommend Tasha have. Is she has to she has to absolutely be there for another year. That's okay. Look at it as a temporary situation, but know uh, what you're going to do after that year. Because you're really going to fall into despair. I like what you're saying there because you'll fall into despair if you don't feel like there is that light at the end of the tunnel. If there's no hope in the future, then yeah, of course, you are going to start to feel feel some certain amount of of discontent. And it's going to grow and grow and grow because – you, you, you think one day there will be something will change, but if you don't know what that change is because you're not clear on that, that outcome, mm-hmm. then you're going to feel more growing despair as, as things go on. I, I tend to think of regret as sort of this judgment of the past, but the stress that you're experiencing is a, a verdict on some non-existent future. And, and the cool thing is you get to change what, what that future existence uh, actually is. And Ryan, I, I was looking for an article to highlight this, and I won't read the whole thing, but our friend Leo Babalta, who's, who's in our documentary, he's, uh, he and his wife, Eva, they have six kids, and he wrote this essay called The Busy Person's Guide to Reducing Stress, and uh, it goes a little something like this. Stress is one of the biggest causes of health problems in many people's lives. It can cause heart disease, depression, anxiety attacks, sleep problems, autoimmune diseases, weight problems, and more, but we're busy. How do we drop the stress levels down while we're still getting our jobs done, taking care of ourselves and our families? The busy person might have no time for week-long meditation retreats, mini vacations, or weekly counseling sessions. So, what can be done? I'm going to be brief about this. There are five small things that you can do. A few shifts in mindset, a couple actions that take only a couple minutes. 
These won't solve the most severe stress problems, but they will help most of us. Number one, be completely in one task. Instead of being in the stressful task switching mode, take your next task. Let everything else go and just be in the moment with this one task. So that may contradict what I was talking about being in the bathtub with, with the, the, the paperwork. <laughs> but um, I think maybe being in the bathtub with the paperwork could be the best way to actually be in the moment there as well. So, so don't put it off. Don't postpone it. Just sit there with that task. And, and what he says here really resonated with me, Ryan. He said, there will always be a next task. The mm. nature of tasks uh, and lists is that they are never ending. So let those other tasks come later. Just be in this one task. Let, let it be your entire universe. Number two, he says, see your ideals and let go of control. I love this first line here. Fear is causing you to be stressed, not external factors like your job or family, or family problems. So fear is, is it's your internal fear. It's not all these external things. It's not actually the paperwork that's causing her to be stressed. It's the, the way she experiences that, that paperwork, mm. right? Uh, you, in fact, when you, you talk to high-functioning executives in companies, you'll hear two words that come up a lot. I'm very busy or I'm stressed. Mm. If something's wrong, I'm just really stressed right now. And the truth is, if you follow that, that, that stress far enough, you're really finding someone's fear. That's what they're afraid of. Your stress leads to your fear. And so you got to find a way to be able to let that go and realize that it's not those external factors that you're afraid of. That fear is internal, and it always will be. Number three, he says, accept people and smile. We get upset at other people because they don't meet our ideals of how they should act. Instead, try accepting them for who they are and recognize that, like you, they're imperfect and seeking happiness and struggling with finding that happiness. They're doing their best. Accept them, smile, and enjoy your time with this person. I think that would be really good advice for Steve, the, the, the last the question. How do I deal with non-minimalists? Well, accept and smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four, this is one I, I do a lot. Take a brief walk. When things are getting stressful, take two to three minutes and take a walk and clear your mind. A short walk does wonders. I agree. Or a long walk. I, I will often go on a long walk. To clear my mind. In fact, when it's cold in the winter, I there's a, a gym that I go to, and I just walk the track over and over and over, and, and until I'm feeling less stress, and I make sure I'm breathing accordingly. And number five, do short mindfulness practices. Uh, you don't you don't have to meditate for 30 minutes to get the benefits of mindfulness. You can do a quick body scan, see how your body is feeling right now in 10 seconds. So those are our five tips. We'll put a link to that entire article in, in the show notes. I think that'll help out. And then last, Ryan, she, uh, Tasha asked, is this worth it? Is sticking it out worth it? And I'll just repeat what Ryan said here. No, but make a plan before you decide to go. Are you in debt? Then get out of debt. You can see our, our get out of debt plan at theminimalists.com slash freedom. I think that will help you out a lot. Uh, Also, create some sort of deadline. Ryan talked about a one-year deadline. Mine was two years to get out of debt. Figure out what your deadline is, and no matter what, stick to that deadline to make that change in your life. And then ultimately, figure out what your outcome is. Get so clear about what that outcome is, because making this transition is going to be difficult, but it can lead to a simpler, less stressed life. 
All right, the next clip you're going to hear is from podcast episode number 56. This episode was called Clothing, and from what I remember, it was one of the longer episodes. We really dove into wardrobe and clothing, so you can go back and check any of these in our archives, any of the, the clips today or any other past episodes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. My question is in regards to purchasing items of high quality. I know a lot is talked in the podcast and um, saw a documentary in New York about purchasing quality things. And I, I'm referring um, in this question specifically to clothing. I remember in the documentary there was questions or the discussion of fast fashion. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions for brands or stores to buy clothes at that last. So, yeah, we, we can talk about brands for sure, but with another caveat – so A, I already mentioned you probably don't need any more clothes. But the second thing is the things that work for me may not necessarily work for you. The things that add value to my life may not add value to yours. And there's a whole bunch of different reasons. One is we're all shaped differently. I'm six foot two, 160 pounds. And so the things that fit me probably won't fit you if you're of a different size. Sometimes they might. So, But keep that in mind. Same thing with Ryan. Uh, th these things may not fit. We can talk about brands that we think are ethical, though. We could, Ryan, we could probably start by, by talking about what we're wearing right now, and then that's going to be typically what we, what we do wear. Mm -hmm. And then you know, how, how, do we, how do we assess you know, what, what to wear, right? So you I'm looking... Go first? Yeah, I'm, go I'm, yeah I'll, I'm, I'll look at you. and You're wearing a black T-shirt. Yes, I think you're wearing pants. I can't tell from under the table, but <laughs> yes. well, I'll assume you're wearing the, the blue jeans I see, usually see you wearing. And then you're probably, because there's snow on the ground outside the window, you're probably not wearing your zero shoes. No. You're wearing boots, I'm yep. assuming. Yep. And if they're the normal boots you wear, they have these bright orange laces in them. Yes. So, they uh, pop real nice. <laughs> that's your, yeah, that's your pop of color. And then you have some mismatching socks, I'm guessing. Probably, yes. <laughs> I'd be, I'd for, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> and and so um, that is sort of your uniform in a way, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, I don't think you would identify. I'm putting on my uniform. No, it's just the clothes you wear a every day. You want to talk about why why you've decided to have that that sort of type of, uh, of uniform, that is wearing a very s the same or very similar thing every day? Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> it's simple. <laughs> it's a pretty simple answer. No, uh, I wear the same thing every day because, well, a like you know, we've most of us have seen the articles on how if you have a uniform, mm -hmm. you have less choices to make throughout the day, which right. is important, right? Because you have only so much uh, brain power right. that that you can use to discern between different choices. So you know, I don't have to like you know, make those choices when I get up. I know exactly what I'm going to wear. It's something like 120 choices, difficult choices a day. And surprisingly, picking your wardrobe is takes up several of those choices. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, if yeah, especially if you're take, putting clothes on, taking clothes off, putting clothes back on. Yeah, there are several choices that you are, you are forsaking. And it's not like you can't make choices after 120 choices. It's you don't have the mental capacity to sit there and... Uh, be deliberate with your choices. Uh -huh. Yeah, it so, diminishes so I, the maybe quality. a better way said is you have 120 deliberate choices that you can make during the day. Is about what the study shows. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I got an American Apparel shirt. Um, although I guess they just went out of business. Yeah, they they filed so, bank for bankruptcy. So, so you can't get American. Well, yeah, I'm sure you can still get it. it it's weird. They've had this strange okay. business model, right? They they well, their founder 
uh, Dove Charney, who was sort of this clothing pioneer and, and a bit of a genius, yeah. it seemed, in the clothing world because he's the first person that pioneered like really soft shirts that were better fitting and higher quality threads and uh, made in America. Uh, but then it also turns out that he was allegedly uh, a kind of a terrible person, right? If you go and read the, the news reports, he was... Yeah, he got in trouble for some like sexual harassment stuff or something, right? He was a jerk to his Bit employees and, and, yeah, and the sexual harassment yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, and I certainly would not recommend... Well, I don't know. So when I started wearing American Apparel t-shirts on a regular basis, um, I usually have to get like seven... Because I'll go through like seven shirts a year. Uh-huh. So I'll have like a week's worth of shirts... I'll wear those for 52 weeks. You know, during that time, they get holes in them. They get super faded, which I guess is cool now. Maybe I should hold <laughs> on to those shirts. Um, but, uh, but you know, when I started wearing them four or five years ago, the quality was not that good. Like, it, it, for every four shirts I bought, I would have to, like, return or exchange one because of some kind of defect in the shirt. Right. So I'm not like sitting here and getting behind American Apparel. They fit me the best, and that's why I like them. Right. And and this was, by the way, out of all the t-shirts I tried, like they fit me by far the best. So so that the founder uh, Dove Charney, he was forced out of the company be- because of those sexual allegations. Right. right? And so um, and. The weird thing is, when he was forced out, I think that's when the the, the quality started to diminish. And, right. and recently, it sounds like they their quality has improved. Now, I don't know if they'll transition to some sort of wholesale business where you'll still be able to order online and they'll just close all their, their retail shops. That might be a possibility. Yeah. Not really sure where they go from here. Uh, if not, I can I can recommend some different brands that have worked for me, but yeah. may not work for you. I've been meaning to try the Smart Wool t-shirts. Oh. Like The next time I need to buy t-shirts, I'm going to get at least one Smart Wool t-shirt because uh-huh. I hear that... Like, A, they dry really quickly. They're very comfortable. Right. And the, the biggest problem I have with my T-shirts, which is why I really ruined them, which I don't think this is cool with the cool kids, <laughs> is like, because I, I wear these to the gym as well. Uh-huh. And then, like, they just start to, oh, they just get a little odor to them. Uh-huh. Even after I, like, wash them and stuff, like, it, it just starts to, like, get embedded into the fibers. Yeah. Well, Smart Wool is great, man. My socks smart, smart Wool doesn't do that. Yeah. No. So that's, yeah, that's why I'm going to try that out when I, the next time I need a new t-shirt. But right now, I mean, these are, these are still pretty good. The, yeah. The seven that I have. And then uh, my jeans, barbell jeans. I've had these for a month and a half. First pair of barbell jeans I've ever owned. They're the most comfortable jeans I've ever had. I can't really speak to the durability, but I can certainly speak to uh, how comfortable they are. Um, I was doing karate a couple podcasts ago. <laughs> <laughs> and my barbell jeans. Actually, someone hit me up on Twitter yesterday. They're like, hey, what's that pair of jeans you recommended a few podcasts ago? Um, but yeah, barbell jeans are, are great. I used to wear J. Crew jeans and they were they were good. Like they were durable. Um but you know, I'm just I got like, you know, just I'm a bigger guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having having jeans that fit me, uh, it's it it's great, but I can't well, I can't do karate in J. Crew jeans, right? But right. they were they were great jeans. Though. I really really liked them, and uh, they're like pretty expensive. Actually, barbell are pretty expensive too. You know, unless you get them on sale or something, which I would do sometimes. I certainly didn't go out of my way to get them on sale, or I didn't just buy jeans when they came on sale. Right, but right. Sometimes I would get lucky and I like go buy a pair of jeans. And I'm like, oh sweet, like these are you know half off right now. But uh, yeah, the problem is I will often see, well, oh man, it's fifty percent off. I should go ahead and buy this thing. Uh, no, it's a hundred percent off if you don't buy it. Walk away from the store and save a hundred percent of your money, unless you absolutely need the thing. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, my boots—I don't even know what brand these are. Like <laughs> that is awesome. That is yeah, so great. I don't even know what brand they are. I know that they are—they're uh, uh, comfortable. Uh-huh. They keep my feet warm. Uh-huh. 
Uh, they are waterproof. They they look pretty good. This, I need to replace the soles on them because the soles have like no tread on them. I f- I have fallen like four to six times in my parking lot. Oh. <laughs> I was carrying snowboards the other day and like totally ate it. Uh, but yeah, because my my tread on the bottom is like pretty pretty worn out. But yeah, um, let's talk about pretty that simple wardrobe. I think it's a really great thing you talk about. I'm not going to throw these boots out. I'm going to have them resole. I mean, yeah. there are times where if you have a huge rip on the top of a boot, you're going to have to get rid of it, right? Right. Like you don't want water coming in or whatever. Uh, you don't want your toes poking out. But I quite often I wear uh, Timberland boots. Those are the, the main boots that I wear, and I have them resold quite frequently until they find the the leather itself finally just wears out. Yeah. So having having uh, boots resold at a local or your shoes resold if if they if they're the type of shoes you can have resold is is a very responsible way of of keeping those shoes around for a long time. Mm. Yeah, you can wear the same pair of boots for many many years every single day if you if you're willing to take good care of them and and have them have them resold i um so yeah i'm wearing some timberland boots right now i'm wearing uh smart wool socks that keep my feet from stinking in in the winter i don't necessarily wear them in the summer i've never tried i've had people tell me like yeah wearing nice wool in the summer will help actually keep you cooler so uh might be something that i'll that i'll try out for sure the pair of pants I'm wearing right now are from Mission Workshop. They're based out of San Francisco. I like that company a lot. They make some awesome bags. Yeah, you you had their bag for a long time. In fact, Mariah's using. I think Mariah is using your yeah, Mission I've, Workshop bag. Yeah, as well. I've got the Manal bag now. Um, but uh, yeah, she yeah, I gave her the Mission. I, got, I actually got those Manals off of you so I could give her my Mission Workshop bag. Oh, nice! Because you you traveled all around Europe for about a month mm-hmm. and and had the those bags with you and the only thing you carried. By the way, for people who are listening. If you want links to all the stuff we're talking about, you can just go to the show notes at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Or if you sign up for our email uh, newsletter, we send out all the notes to everyone whenever a new episode comes out. So you won't miss any of the show notes. So anything we're talking about today, I'm not going to start rattling off a bunch of websites. You'll be able to find it in the show notes. Uh, Yeah, Mission Workshop uh, are the pants that I'm wearing. And they fit me really well. I'm imagining I have really, really, really thin legs. Mm-hmm. These pants would not fit you very well. Probably not. Because you're a big manly man mm-hmm. with, your, right. with your big calves. And, but these, uh, they, they make different pants, but they're really high quality. I, can, I exercise in these. I could do yoga in these if I wanted to. Can you to. do karate in them? I, I could do. I don't. I wouldn't call what you do karate, Ryan. Whatever. I would call it like interpretive karate. Well, can you do interpretive karate? <laughs> I could. Sweet. I, I don't know if I should though. <laughs> so yeah, uh, th- these pants work really well. They have a, a great um, uh, cell phone pocket on the side, which keeps my phone and the emissions away from my private parts, which is really good. Uh, also keeps me from sitting on it. Uh, and I, t- I tend to keep my phone in airplane mode anyway, but uh, if not, it's there in my, in my uh, side pocket that zips up. And they're just really comfortable, man. I wear them every single day. They're black. They have a couple different colors. I think the one I'm call- wearing is called the Signal Pants. I also own a, one other pair of pants, the Division Pants, also from Mission Workshop. The uh, sweater I'm wearing today, or actually underneath the sweater, this is a used uh, T-shirt from Save Khaki. One of my, my favorite t-shirt brands. I got it used on eBay, though. And so that's one of the things I like to do. If I need something, 
I'll see if I can first get it used because I think it's one of the most responsible ways to to purchase gently used uh, uh, clothes. It's still new to me. Mm. The, the The cardigan I'm wearing is from Everlane, and I really like what uh, Everlane does. Everlane has this transparency policy or transparent pricing. They'll tell you exactly how much it costs for them to manufacture the thing, and oh, they'll wow. show you all the costs that go into manufacturing it. So say this sweater costs, I don't know, $90 or something, and I've worn this sweater for years. They'll show you the 50, how it costs them $50 and then their, what their profit margin is on, on top of that. And so it's trans, cool. radically transparent pricing. Some other shirts, Ryan, that you might want to try if uh, you're not able to get the shirts that you're wearing anymore. Uh, Michael Stars, they're made in the United States, and they're really super comfortable. I was wearing one of cool. his or their T-shirts yesterday. Michael Stars is, has been a, a good brand for me. So Save Khaki, Michael Stars are, are the T-shirts I, I personally enjoy using. But now, I've never got anything off of Everlane. Is, it, is Everlane a brand or is it a supplier? It's a brand. Okay. Yeah, and, and they make really good T-shirts as well. Uh, so the folks at our, at our coffee house, Bandit Coffee Co., um, Joshua Weaver and his wife Sarah they've actually done some photo work for them in the past but they um, oh, wow. th- they do really beautiful minimalist clothing uh, and, and and source it in, a, in an ethical way I don't think they make everything that they make in the United States but that's okay they, they still find ways to make it ethically out, outside of our outside of our borders um, the coat that I wore here today is from Patagonia and I'm I, I won't beat you over the head with their with their story but i would really encourage you to go check it out uh yvonne who who the guy who started the company he is just amazing and his ethics for his company are beautiful he wants to make really great items that last a lifetime in fact they send a van around the country and repair your stuff for you so if my patagonia coat rips in time or something wears out they will repair uh, something on it for me even if i've owned it for 20 years and they also encourage people to not buy their stuff. I love it. Brand it's like, new. It's like their advertisement. You do not need this jacket. Right. Right. And what they'll say is buy our stuff Genius. used. If you have the opportunity to buy it used, get your stuff fixed instead of buying something new. And when you actually do need something new, then we are here for you. Also on Black Friday, they did something really cool, Ryan. They donated 100% of their profits. That was awesome. Uh, that so was really cool. All man. the money they made on, on Black Friday, they donated that to charity. Uh, Everlane in the past has closed on Black Friday. So we, we just mentioned Everlane a moment ago. They'll, they'll close their website. You go there on Black Friday or maybe it was Cyber Monday or maybe even both. And it says, sorry, our website is closed. Uh, our REI, which is the, the retailer that sells a lot of Patagonia stuff, they, they closed on Black Friday. They have this whole opt outside campaign. They, instead of just opting out of Black Friday, it's, hey, get outside while you can. It's yeah. Black Friday. Everyone else is shopping. Why don't you spend some time doing something more intentional with your day? So I, I just really enjoy when different companies do do different things like that that are contributing to the greater good. In the summer, uh, speaking of contributing to the greater good, in the summer, I tend to wear Tom's, uh, Tom's shoes. They work really well for me. They're my favorite walking shoes, actually. Dude. I know you wear zero yeah. shoes. Yeah, my feet stinks so bad when i wear toms <laughs> <laughs> maybe you need some like smart wool socks in the top something man no yeah. yeah i wear the zero shoes because my 
my feet can sweat freely without uh, ruining a pair of Toms. Yeah, so for the folks that saw the documentary, they often thought you were barefoot. And, yeah. Or they'll see us on tour and you're wearing these Zero shoes, which is... Uh, They're like, dude, you, come on, man. Barefoot, really? <laughs> I'm like, I got shoes on. They're just not very big. They're just... <laughs> They're minimal. <laughs> They're minimal, exactly. Yeah, but it, you've, no, you've really great, enjoyed man. those, man. I love them except for the first two weeks of the summer that I wear them. Because? Because, like, you... You gotta break your feet in, man. Uh huh. Because like you you're start used you, to it. you start using muscles that you're not used to using with padded shoes. You've got calluses. You gotta you know put on your feet because it's really for, like walking barefoot, but with a little bit of protection. Yeah. So during the summer, like Mar and I will easily get like ten to fifteen thousand steps in a day, easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not like those first two weeks. I won't do ten thousand steps in those shoes. Like I'll wear sneakers or something around, but like I can't do ten thousand steps a day two weeks straight because like it takes. It takes some time to wear your feet in, but when, but once they get worn in, like they're they are the most comfortable shoes I've I've ever worn in my life. Once once your feet get worn in, not the shoes. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> so what I like about everything that you wear is nothing that you're wearing right now has any any logo on it. And when I wear Toms uh, in in the summer, I'm not wearing them in the winter here just because you don't want to get those wet. But uh, because it's just thin canvas, basically, they're very similar. They're, they're so what, what is that called? Zero step. Is yeah. that what it is? With the, with, yeah, so just like the, the zero shoes, but they're, they're zero step um, where the, the heel-to-toe ratio is, is the same. And um, what I like about those, they're very comfortable. I walk a ton in them. What I don't like about them is they have a gigantic logo on the back, and mm. I prefer not to wear logos on, on any of my stuff because I don't want to be a walking billboard. In fact, I don't want to pay people to advertise for them. That seems a little absurd to me. There are a few examples. So, so what I do with those toms is I take the logos off, right? Yeah. I just, I, I remove the, the, just unstitch the, the logo on the back and on the side. And then people often ask like, those kind of look like toms. What are, and, and it, it's an interesting conversation starter. I do like what they do. They donate a lot of their profits. They also donate a lot of shoes and eyewear, eyeglasses to uh, third world countries. And I appreciate that. I know there's been some criticism uh, for their founder, Blake, and, and, and some of the things they've done uh, in, in different countries, but I have not found yet that that criticism is very valid. It seems like people who, who are criticizing um, may not necessarily um, care as much about contribution as that company does. Yeah. And so... Uh, but you course. know what though too I think some people they'll wear like the t- like they're proud of the Tom's logo yeah because of the contribution they do sure and they'll yeah and they so it's you know I guess it just you know personal preference just depending on part of its aesthetics yeah absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I like the aesthetic of being somewhat logo free uh, the only logo I think I have on anything is my Patagonia coat that I wore into here you can't really but, take it off though yeah I think it would it would ruin the, the yeah. front part otherwise I, I would take it off but uh, although I'll tell you man in, in Montana it's everyone here here seems to wear Patagonia. It's like uh, because it's, like, it's so uh, functional. No, what it so it's Patagonia out west and out east. It is what's the other North one? North Face. Yeah, North Face out <laughs> east. Yeah, my my partner Bex, she just got a new coat this winter finally after yeah. having a Patagonia coat for probably the last decade or so, and uh, she got she ended up getting a North Face coat because oh, okay. she, she she and she got it from REI and um really loves it i mean really really simple yeah. let's see what, what else do we what else do we wear oh we just talked we talked briefly about bags you're wearing the manal or you 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 use the manal bag i'm wearing the manal bag right now <laughs> 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 i cut armholes out of it and <laughs> leg holes in the springs ryan is wearing the 2017 spring bag <laughs> 
Yes. Uh, no. Yeah. I, I bought uh, I bought your Manal bags off of you because well, let's it, talk about that. Great for you. I love how. So, so, dude, you still have the Malcolm Fontier bag that you still use. Rice. The one that was rice. in the. I, said, I just said rice. You did say rice. <laughs> I'm hungry. As hell I was just. Right I was now. gonna. I was just gonna ignore <laughs> it. Everyone else listening to this would have ignored it too. But now we're now we're very aware that you said rice. <laughs> Instead of right, Ryan, Ryan, carbohydrates. Go ahead. <laughs> so, so you've been trying so hard to find uh, a better bag, and so have thousands of other people. Apparently, than that Malcolm Fontier bag, and every well, I mean, I've only you had the Manal bag, and then I think you had another one that you returned or something. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's funny, man, because yes, that Malcolm Fontier bag, like everyone asks about that. And it is a great travel bag. For me, like, I don't like the single strap. That's mm-hmm. the only criticism I have on it. And I, I much prefer it. Right. And I and I am um I am the type of <laughs> well, this is this just goes to show our personalities. The mission workshop bag I had was basically a big duffel bag. Right. So I would like fold uh, my big I would, duffel bag backpack. Yeah. Big, big duffel bag backpack. I would fold my clothes uh-huh. as you know, like half half. He's doing like air quotes right now, <laughs> which really means he's stuffing. I was cl- stuffing clothes the clothes in into the bag, but that's exactly what I wanted. Was like just you know something I could cram a bunch of stuff in. Sure. Um, where the Malcolm Fontier bag is very like OCD. Yes, you've got pr- pockets and like pouches and everything to put different things in, and it works really really well. And I used it while we were on tour in 2014, and it was. Great. I just prefer uh-huh. the backpack. I prefer the duffel bag part of it. But the Manal was really good for that because I think you have a little bit more space. And I think it's a little bit more organized than just like the duffel bag approach. So it's kind of like I think the Manal is like a, a blend between uh, the Mission Workshop bag and the Malcolm Fontier bag. And it's still a backpack. So it works really, really well for me, especially because it comes with that little second bag that counts as a uh, it's a carry on. Right. Like your personal item. Yeah. So I got that big Manal bag from you. That I could put in the overhead, and then I could, you know, put some clothes and stuff in this other bag along with my laptop, so forth and so on, and it fits perfectly underneath the seat of an airplane. Yes, yeah, it's like I never have to check a bag. Item. Yeah, it's 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 your man purse. It's, it's your purse. It's my purse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, Sean, our our stalwart producer, he he uses a fanny pack. Just like the powerful Joe Rogan does. Yeah, I will never make fun of a fanny pack again. Now that. Joe Rogan. I know, right? I know that Joe Rogan wears a fanny pack. <laughs> Put your head through a wall. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I dare you to make fun of Joe Rogan's fanny pack. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, if I needed a fanny, I wouldn't. I would. I, I just don't need it. I don't carry much with me. The the wallet that I have is a, a money clamp, which we talked about on previous episode, and so I and I have a phone in my pocket, and I have chapstick in my pocket, and I actually have a bunch of pills in my pocket too, but. Um, that's just my, like my vitamins, uh, for the, what was this question we were talking about? Um, we were talking oh, brands. about, that's right, brands, yeah, what brands. brands. And so what brand are, uh, rice, I think was the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Onto our I'm, favorite I'm, brands of rice. I'm going to rice. No. So, uh, uh, you mentioned my, my bag, the Malcolm Fontier bag. The now, bag that everyone asks about. Now, literally over a thousand people have asked me, where did, where did, where can I get that bag? That's in your documentary, and I don't. I, my my short answer is you can't. Well, first off, we've done a horrible job. <laughs> if you've watched our documentary, and the biggest takeaway was I need to get that back. It, it's funny you say that, Ryan, because I was on. Uh, so we just put up that love people use things wallpaper, mm-hmm. and I posted a, a picture of it on our Instagram account, and back to back comments on that picture had nothing to do with the picture, although it had to do with the documentary. This this person said. 
Your documentary and your books have absolutely changed my life. I just want to say thank you so much for what you do. I just want you to know that I really appreciate it. And the person after that said, hey, where can I get that bag that's in your documentary? Wow. And look, I get it. We all find sure. value in certain things. And if you truly need a, a new bag, that Malcolm Fontier bag could potentially be a great bag, but you can't have it. I'm sorry. It's, there's only one <laughs> left because uh, Malcolm Fontier, he started this sort of art project. It was a five-year project where he made some very deliberate goods uh, in uh, the late oddies and early early uh, 2010s, early teens. I don't know what you would call that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in 2013, he ended that project. So he mm-hmm. stopped making bags. He said, okay, my five years are up and I'm done with that. So there's a very limited number of bags that he made and put out there. Now, so uh, do I have anything I can recommend instead of that? Well, maybe. Eventually, uh, our friends over at clevertravelcompanion.com, they make some really interesting travel wear that I have not worn. I can't, I can't recommend it personally. But they're talking about recreating that bag. And if so, we'll, we'll let everyone know on our email list or whatever. But um, uh, until then, if you really need a new bag... If you if you're a backpack kind of person, it sounds like the Manal bag it's has great. worked out great for you. I know a lot of like uh, uh, yeah, Jason Zook. Uh huh. He he has the Manal bag. I know a lot of our friends like in this in this whole blogosphere's podcast world. Mm-hmm. Um, friends Is that a podcast sphere. Podcast sphere. I, I was going to say that, but then I was like, just don't don't try it. Pod sphere. We've already ru- we've already derailed ourselves with rice. Okay. <laughs> Um, but no, I, uh, I, I know a lot of people who use it. I see them posting on, uh, you know, the social medias and I feel the same way about the bag. I absolutely love it. I haven't posted it because I don't like to brag about the things that I have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In fact, and again, like the things that I have, it adds value to my life. Doesn't mean it's going to add value to other people's life. And I had a lot of trepidation going into this episode because I I tend not to recommend brands. We don't advertise for anyone. Um, and, and these are just things, none of these brands are paying us. No. And and nor would we take their money, uh, for them to, you know, put ads. Cause then we would have to talk about them. Right. Right. And I'd prefer to just talk about them in a way that is genuine. Here, here are the things that add value to my life. If I were to replace that bag right now, the few companies I would try, um, until the travel or clever travel companion.com until they, they are able to reproduce that bag. Um, I'm holding out for that, by the way. I'm just gonna wait and see if, because this bag, I have, we we've been on so many tours with it. It's it's hanging by a thread in some places. I've had zippers replaced. I've had things re-sewn. Uh, it is. I've really put it through the ringer. But um, Everlane, I've already mentioned, but they make some really good bags. Our friend Colin Wright, who is the world traveler, he replaced his his uh, uh, Malcolm Fontier bag. He with, did with an Everlane bag. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Tom Ben B I H N. Uh, make some great travel bags that a lot of people have, have recommended. And of course, Mission Workshop and Manal, we, we've already recommended. Uh, I really love the folks at Mission Workshop and, and their mission. They, they, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, their, it's in their name, Mission Workshop. Yeah. They, they create very intentional goods. Well, same with Manal. They, they create only a bag. That's the only thing they do is, is create those bags, some right? Some guys from New Zealand. Yeah, a couple guys from New Zealand. They started with a Kickstarter that was wildly popular. So you can definitely uh, check those out. Uh, and then it's not summertime, so we tend to forget about these things, Ryan. But our shorts, we, we, I, I do oh, wear yeah. shorts in, in the summer. I do too. I, I wear uh, something called uh, a brand called Prana, P R A N A, and I think it's the Asana short is what I wear. And I'm I'm just going off the top of my head here. Uh, and um, I wear yoga pants around the house. They're like a pair of sweatpants, basically, by a company called Four Earth. The number four 
hyphen R T H. I started. I ordered a pair of large of uh, f- uh, four Earth. Uh, four Earth, and I put them on, and they're just they're just like so tight around my quads because I got these <laughs> massive man quads, like yeah, you, you said do. earlier. And then I was you like, know, I got, you, how much weight he left Sean at the at the gym? <laughs> All of it. All of it. <laughs> uh, and then I returned them and got extra larges and still like super tight mine, around my quads. I, I think mine are and small. Was, and was such a nice guy over there. Like we're emailing back and forth. I'm like, dude, these are just not working out. Can I just return these? Like, I don't the want, owner, right? I don't, like, yeah, I don't want to exchange them anymore. He's like, what's wrong with them? I'm like, my legs are just too big for your pants. Yeah. He was like, okay, no worries. They're so great for me, but my partner Rebecca, she will often just t- take mine and wear them. I mean, that's she has bigger legs than I do because she's a, you know, a former soccer player and she's in really, really, really great shape. And so, yeah, I think my my uh, my yoga pants. Well, they look baggier on her, but they certainly fit her. Um, yeah, I I've, I wear those around the house. I exercise in them at the house. I do all my stretching and yoga at the house with those. And then uh, at I go to the sauna several times a week, and you and I wear the same uh, short, same brand of shorts. Miles, yeah, Miles. Is that what it is, yeah, M Y L E S. Yeah, that's correct. And and they're based out of San Francisco as well. They make really simple but also beautiful. Dude, the deep pockets, and then it's got that little like weird side pocket that goes like around your waist, kind of sort of. Uh-huh. I'm probably not explaining that right, but <laughs> but it's got like this like imagine a mitten. Uh huh for the people listening and uh-huh. like that's what the pocket is like ryan's so holding up his hand right now in the shape of michigan <laughs> <laughs> so you've got like the pocket that goes down but then like if you're if you're if you got your hand facing down and your thumb is pointing off to the left there or uh-huh. to the right however you have your hands <laughs> ryan looks <laughs> there's really <laughs> awesome right now there's a there's like a little like side pocket that goes off the main pocket anyway no but they did that intentionally yes. because they were tired of stuff falling out of their shorts. They uh-huh. were tired of not being able to, like, you know, fit w- whatever it is you need to fit. But, like, I've been able to – I'm trying to think, like, the craziest thing. I've carried my Kindle in my pocket before. Oh, Easy. wow. Yeah. And wow. Then, yeah, yeah, so the big pockets. Uh, those shorts are a bit baggy for me, but I use them for the, – I mean, for me. I think they fit you great, and most people they fit great, but my legs are so thin that uh, they're great for swimming and they're great for going to the sauna. I literally wore their shorts to a wedding. There you go. Like they're they look nice. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah they, I think they do look great. Uh, you could totally get away if you a very casual business meeting, something like that. They they do, they look really great, and you can also run a marathon in them as well. I I wear a slightly slimmer short with the with the prana shorts, and then the last thing people often ask me about: Where do you get your red underwear? <laughs> because you've seen the documentary and you know that when I'm on the road, the way I separate my dirty and clean underwear is by having the one pair of red underwear. In fact, Bex will often look at me if I'm wearing the red underwear and she'll say, oh, it's laundry day, isn't it? Because she knows that um, I'm down to my last pair of underwear. I think it's important to know I don't own nearly as many clothes now, but I still I own enough clothes. I don't have to do laundry every day. I do laundry once a week typically. And I own I own enough to get me at least through the week, but it was absurd before, Ryan. I could have gone months, not just a month, not just weeks, but months without without doing any laundry. And of course, when you do that, in fact, I tried that back in the days. I, I went through a whole bunch of laundry. I would constantly keep wearing clothes. Well, you, then you have a mountain of laundry you have to do, and then you start whittling it down. You're like, oh, I don't want to wear this. I don't want to wear this. I don't want to wear this. If you ever get that thought in your mind, like, I don't really want to wear this today. You should probably donate it. Yeah, you, sh- you should probably find someone else who can who can use that thing. I hate I hated that when I had so many clothes, like three weeks, a month worth of clothes, whatever it was, 
And then I went to go do laundry and it was just like piles and piles and piles of laundry. Yeah. It's just like so much easier to have like a week's worth of clothes. Like, okay, I have to do laundry. Like it forces you to do laundry every week. Instead and, of stressing you And you out. have to fold your clothes because, well, I mean, I guess sometimes I'll just like live out of the laundry, the clean laundry bin. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would never, ever do that. I know. Um, let's see. Uh, a couple other things. R- real quick here. A couple other brands that I found. Oh, well, I didn't even give the brand. My, my underwear is just the best underwear I've ever had is is just jockey uh it's it's yeah. jockey it's, I, I wear the midway brief they're really like they're long um i wear uh actually you might like the exo exoficio i don't know exo exoficio 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 maybe that's how you pronounce it but anyway i love them man they are i like because i was i used to wear hanes uh-huh and i just they're not very durable right and they're not that super comfortable and they don't look that great like right. So yeah, I just like went through different a few different pair. Like I think I tried on Saks, which those are okay. S A X X, like those are okay. But the Exoficio, like for me, like fit me way better, and they're super durable, and yeah, like they're they're awesome. I love them a lot. Yeah. So so my they add a lot of value. My my underwear are I just prefer really long underwear, and I found these the Mormon longest. underwear. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and so um, what else? What else? Oh, uh, real quick, I I wore some flip flops. Havanas, I think they're called, huh? um, the, or the flip flops I wear. Man, they're I got... they're super comfortable. I, again, I wear those to the uh, sauna, and I mean, I I wouldn't wear because it's not great for your posture. I wouldn't wear flip flops walking around town. The pair of flip flops I have, I got because of the twenty twenty rule. Oh, nice in Australia. So twenty twenty rule. I don't know what brand they are. Is the just in case rule? Yeah, the just in case rule. So like, I did not because I packed my zero shoes and I packed some sneakers or my boots uh, t- uh, for Australia. Uh-huh. And I had a pair of flip-flops. Well, it was, actually, it was Mariah's flip-flops that I would use. And I don't want to take her flip-flops. Yeah. Even though it was like fall here, I didn't think she would wear them. But um, I was just thinking to myself, the 2020 rule, I'm like, I don't really think I need it. I am bringing them just in case. Mm-hmm. But it turned out when we were in Australia, I was like, damn, I really wish I had some flip-flops for the beach and stuff. Because like the zero shoes are great, except for when you're walking in the sand. Right. Because like they have a strap on the back, which right. is great for walking. Yeah. So the sand, yeah, will get in the in the zero shoe. My feet will sweat. It forms little clumps on the zero shoe, which dry <laughs> I mean it's really, really bad. And then when you get in the water, uh-huh. because they are attached to your feet, like the water will grab the zero shoe right. and pull it off your foot and it breaks. Like that's how I that's how I will uh, usually pull the string through is like from having them in water. So right. when we were like in Gold Coast and it's like surfer town there, I was like, God, I really wish I had some flip flops. I should have brought those flip flops. But uh. yeah, we went and found a pair of flip flops for less than twenty bucks. Right, twenty Australian dollars <laughs> in less than twenty minutes. Right, <laughs> yeah. So it was. And you've uh, had them ever since. Yeah, I don't know them. the brand of them, but yeah, I still use them. Yeah, yeah. They're, and actually, they're um, the corner store brand now. Yeah, Mariah's the ones that I used of hers. Uh huh. Those broke, so now she shares the, <laughs> the ones that I brought awesome. back from Australia. <laughs> that is great. I wonder how long that'll last. I mean, probably a while with you two. You you, you two are able to share stuff like that. Um, let's see. Uh, I, I wear some water shoes. So speaking of water shoes, I actually wear a pair of water shoes. The a company is They're called- They're made from water? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. It's the, the, the company is called the Emperor's New Clothes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's- um, I think it's called Shakwa. And- I wouldn't wear. I I don't really need these, and except here in Montana, we go to these um, hot springs. Hot springs all the time, and I was constantly hurting my feet. Like I went to the Boiling River and messed my foot up. I went to Jerry Johnson, messed my foot up. 
and, and like you know i'm just really clumsy and I've, i've i don't have great balance and so um they and my feet aren't even that tender but like i would mess them up <laughs> and, and so like uh, uh, Ryan, you be well, no, uh, the, the tenderfoot. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe you, if, if you go to Jerry Johnson or a See, place what like people that. don't know is that on tour, I'm always complaining about how bad my feet hurt <laughs> because we walk so much. And Josh calls me Ryan Tenderfoot Nicodemus. <laughs> but you know what's funny is my feet don't hurt when I go to Jerry Johnson and stuff, man. No, well, I for whatever reason, yeah. like I, it's not. It's even the hurt, clumsy like, thing. No, I know what yeah, you're saying. It's like I, slip I, in and yeah, right. And so uh, these water shoes have have probably literally saved my life at, at least one occasion because i fall a lot and i've hurt myself i mean i've strained muscles at jerry john like, it's just not good but with these with the water shoes on it's been it's been outstanding also you have the zero shoes uh i th- those didn't work as well for me but uh in the summer i will wear to the gym i'll wear uh, a pair of limbs l-e-m-s and um, our friend Justin Archer, who runs theposturguy.com, was a guy who recommended those to me and got a lot of value from those. Um, so it's like zero shoe in terms of it feels like you're walking barefoot, but it's a full sort of sneaker. What did uh, you call it? A barefoot step? What did you call no, it? No, I think it was a, a, a zero step, maybe? Zero step? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Or, or a zero instep. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and the last thing that I have... Uh, in the winters for snow as I have some winter boots from echo. Uh, and although whenever those go bad, I'm going to replace them with the boots I recommended to you recently, because I know you've, you've fallen several times yeah. this, this winter. Uh, the, what, what Becca wears and what Ella wears as well is a company called extra tough. Mm. And it's spelled really funny. I think it's X T R A T U F mm. all one word, but these are what the Alaskan fishermen wear in the, God, I just winter, looked these up. Man. These are the ugliest boots I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are not the most aesthetically pleasing boots, but I'll tell you, man. I've seen I've seen Beck's like jog on you ice before without any Bex problem. Can pull these off. Yeah, I mean, I don't but, know if I can pull these off. And and uh, well, I think they lend themselves to a simpler wardrobe as well because they are fairly simple themselves. But they, when you talk about function over over form this yeah. is true function and and they are pretty simple I, and they, they work in rain in in mud and snow they're just great all-around boots i have not worn a pair myself but ella and bex both love theirs so um awesome. next time i need i need some winter or Extra rough tough. yeah rough rather w- rough weather boots rice so, weather boots you heard it here <laughs> folks and this next clip is from our Overwhelm episode. It was episode number 68. We talked about being overwhelmed and how to deal with that throughout the episode. Here's a question and an answer from episode 68. From the beginning of 2016, I started to experience severe depressive episodes and was ultimately diagnosed with treatment-resistant major depressive disorder order once I started my fourth and fifth medication. Ultimately, I had to take a year-long absence from school, and now I'm still in recovery. Although I recognize now that I have a serious real mental health disorder that I have to live with, I still can't come to grasp the term, grasp the term that my life has suddenly taken. Um, as a type A personality, I am a- unable to process these changes and allow myself to forgive myself and move on from what appears to, to me to be like a failure. Um, leaving school abruptly while temporarily 
while while it's temporary, um, it shook my confidence and self-esteem and has plunged me deeper into depression. My question for you guys is, do you guys have any advice for me on dealing with these unique circumstances? How do you guys deal with setbacks? How do you view failure and how do you process failure? Do you believe it is possible to have a functional, meaningful life even if you suffer from mental illness, like severe depression or anxiety? Miley, we are, first off, grateful that we're able to add value to your life. Um, But, you know, yes, it is absolutely possible to live a meaningful life uh, when dealing with a mental illness. So I I just want to reassure you that. Um, I thought of this parable last night, Josh. I don't don't know if you will enjoy this because I know you hate animals. (laughs) (laughs) Animals and onions, Josh despises. (laughs) Um, But you like giraffes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was big purple tongues. They are pretty cool. You know, recently they found out there are uh, four different species of giraffes. Like, it's not just one specific giraffe. Anyway, I'm no, going but, on a So, I, I always ask Ella what sound a giraffe makes. <laughs> what did she do? Stick out her tongue? Well, no, because, like, no one knows, right? And so, <laughs> uh, I, I told her that it goes... <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, we'll be somewhere. Ella will, like, be at, like, someone's house, you know, and they're, all the kids are together playing, and... And I'll say, hell, what what sound does giraffe make? And she'll just go, she'll look over and she'll just go. (laughs) (laughs) And all the parents are like, is that, I guess that is the sound a giraffe makes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It sounds like um, an elephant that has lost its like voice box or something. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here's, here's, here's the parable I have for you, Miley. You know, I want you to imagine like a stray draw a, a stray dog that you find on the side of the road. It's been hit by a car and it's wounded, obviously. And as you approach the dog, kind of snarls a little bit out of fear and tries to keep its distance, but eventually she realizes you are her only hope for survival and she lets you pick her up. And at first embrace, you know, she looks at you with those those big puppy dog eyes. Funny how uh, adult dogs can still have like puppy dog eyes sometimes. <sighs> and uh, you know, gives you a nice slobbery lick on your face. And after you save this dog's life with the help of the vet, you bring her home and she is as happy as can be. And it seems great. But then, you know, the first time you invite company over, she gets scared, pees on the carpet and runs and hides. And and you think to yourself, well, well, you know, this is, you know, I got to acclimate her to company. I got to acclimate her to my, my friends and family. So you think, yeah, eventually she'll warm up to others. But you know what? It never happens. And time and time again, the dog gets scared. It hides. It pees on the carpet when anyone else comes around but you. But you and this dog have a very, very good relationship. So so what do you do? Like, do you start to despise that dog? Do you start to hate that dog? Do you, do you get rid of that dog do you, for its, uh, you know, repeated failures to acclimate towards other people? Of, of course not. Like you're you're going to you're going to love that dog. So I guess here's my point: is we all fail. We will all fall down at some point. But after we fall, isn't it wonderful when a kind person reaches out their hand to help us get back up on our feet? So you know, I think my biggest uh, piece of advice for Miley here is you have got to find people who are going to be there to extend a hand. And you have to avoid the relationships with those who don't. At the end of the day, the people who, who judge us for failing, who, who pass up the opportunity to help us get back up on our feet, they don't deserve to be in our lives. So, you know, I mean, I know we preach community all the time, Josh, mm-hmm. but I think in Miley's situation, like this is, this is probably 
this is what I would uh, see as her like number one focus mm-hmm. is having people around her that do care for her mm-hmm. that are going to um, are going to offer a hand when she falls down. We all fail, every single one of us. In fact, <clears throat> uh, the one thing I do want to recommend uh, for Miley here is a TEDx talk by a gentleman named. I'm going to really butcher this name. I think it's uh, Jia Zhang. Okay. Okay. All right. I think I, I actually, that's probably really close. Yeah, yeah, you pulled it off. Yeah. So it Bravo. is. Thank you. It is, it is this gentleman who, um, I'm just going to give you the gist cause I don't want to like do any spoiler alerts. Um, and it's like a 20 minute long or 15 minute long, uh, Ted talk, but he basically, um, comes to a point in his life where he is so tired of being scared of failing that he goes out of his way to get comfortable with it. Mm. So he he literally goes out and practices failing. And it's a great story. And uh, we saw this guy talk at um, the World Domination Summit that okay. Chris Gillibo puts on. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was it was by far, I've, I think we've been to like three, maybe four World Domination Summits. Uh-huh. The best talk I've seen out of all, out of all his wow. uh, events. So, uh, I mean, for me, it just, it really motivated me. So uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I would, I would recommend watching that also to kind of help you Get over your feel of failing there. I was thinking of the the first scene of House of Cards when you were going through your parable, but apparently it ended differently from that. <laughs> yeah, f- <laughs> yeah. For those who uh, don't like animals, um, yeah, sorry for that parable. But I know there's, I know we got a lot of readers who who love their pets. I was just, I was just thinking of Frank Underwood in that in that first scene. Anyway, um, so first off, obviously, Miley, I'm I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the podcast or the internet, and, and so. Uh, I'm going to, I'll give you some advice as if I were in your situation. Okay. And so first off, you talked about how you're a highly ambitious med student. There's a line from our book, everything that remains that, that you reminded me of, uh, with, with your question. Uh, It is not ambition that sets a man apart. It is the distance he is prepared to go. And, and I think, I think that's true. We can all be ambitious with, with respect to something, but there are always going to be obstacles in the way as well. Uh, Bex is reading a book by Ryan Holiday right now called the obstacle is the way. And, um, I think we need to keep that in mind. Like the, there will be obstacles, but we have to, we have to go over, we have to go over them. And, and for you, this, uh, depression is an obstacle or what you're calling a, a mental illness. Is that the book that is Beck's part of the? She's part of the book club, right? Yeah, yeah. With with Jess Williams and Mariah and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that that book? Is that the book? Right. Yeah. Right, right. It's funny because I was uh, telling this parable to Mariah. Uh-huh. I was like, "Does this make sense? Like, is this art?" And uh, she recommended that book as well. So, but yeah, it it really isn't the 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 ambition. It's the distance you're prepared to go, and there will always be obstacles in our way. And you mentioned you know how sometimes we fail, sometimes we succeed. And I remember when we used to do interviews, we would interview people. We say, "What's your greatest? Like, what's your biggest weakness?" Or, or tell me about a time you failed. And and the problem with that is it's not binary like that. Most of our our failures are also successes, and most of our successes are peppered with failures. And, and once we realize that, that there are going to be mini, miniature failures along the way, there will be many, miniature successes along the way, it's all an amalgamation of both. You're not going to learn. You know, it's like when I play basketball, right? If I'm shooting free throws, mm-hmm. I'm not going to make 100% of them. So if I, if I shoot 10 and I make 8, that means I failed twice. 
sometimes I'll fail five times. Sometimes I won't fail at all. And, and it's really up to us to say, okay, that isn't a failure. It's just, it's just something I missed. And the overall, it, I can determine whether or not it is a success or a failure. But for Miley specifically, uh, I, I think of the, the Tony Robbins quote. He says, we don't get depressed, we do depressed. Mm. And I think that's true most of the time. Even when we are uh, in a depressed state, we can often change that by changing our, our state, by changing our physiology first. So the first thing we want to try to do is change our physiology. Many depressed people don't exercise. And, and so finding ways to, to get rigorous exercise in, there are a lot of studies that show that people who are depressed, when they implement rigorous exercise for just a couple of weeks, have found, found their, their levels of happiness and contentment raise significantly. Mm -hmm. So 45 minutes a day, every day for two weeks, and you'll notice a significant change. But you'll notice the change even before that. Mm -hmm. if, you put, if you go look in the mirror, put a big smile on your face, jump up and down for 10 seconds, as silly as that sounds, you do it by yourself, no one's gonna laugh at you, you're going to feel a change in your physical state. The, I always hear this thing about faking a smile, like, oh, that, that person was faking a smile. It's actually not something you can fake. A smile is a smile. Right. It may not be genuine, but it is a real smile, and it's going to change your state a little bit. Yeah, and even if it's not a genuine smile, that person is trying. Yes. Like, why would you ever knock someone right. for fake smile? Unless, unless it's like a patronizing yeah if they're being patronizing of course yeah but like if someone's like if, trying to be in a good mood and like you can tell they're they're forcing a smile yes yeah, it's, it's even it's not a fake smile it's a patronizing smile right and, and, and so so yes you want to you want to change your physiology and then after that you want to change your language you're, you're using some language here that I, I i wouldn't use uh especially illness and i get doctors use this but it they'll, they'll use the term illness but to me, that is a, a limiting belief, right? And we all have we all have obstacles in our way, and so maybe instead of saying illness, say I have some mental obstacles. It's okay to say that. Yeah. It's okay to reframe it because once you reframe it, the language that you use, you'll be able to start focusing on what you can do as opposed to what you can't do. So the language you use will then lead to the focus. If you change your body language or you change your physiology, you change the language you're using to frame whatever this challenge or obstacle is, and then you're going to uh, change what you're focused on. Because if you focus on the right things, what you can change, then you'll start changing them. If you focus on things you can't change, you'll feel overwhelmed, you'll feel despair, and then of course, you'll start to feel hopeless longer term. Moving on, here is another question and answer from our values episode. Certainly one of my favorite episodes of the year. It was episode number 69, where we really get into the different types of values and, and try to help people understand what their values are so they can live a more meaningful life. I was really unhappy for about seven years, and so was, and I had unhappy marriage, unhappy life. And last spring, me and my wife stole pretty much everything we had, and we took a six-week trip across the United States uh, with our two toddlers. Uh, and now I live back in Vermont. I have a completely different job, and I've really embraced the minimalism point of view. Uh, my question for you today is about values. Um, in the past years that you've been a minimalist and identified as that, have you found that your values have changed? Um, and how do you how do you deal with that? And what's the best way to deal with that? 
So Andrew's story reminds me of uh, a story that I was telling on Facebook Live the other day, Ryan, when we were having one of our Mondays with the minimalist sessions. We were answering some questions. And to me, I have this friend. He, he does canning or what they're, they're jars, but we call it canning. But they're <laughs> mason jars. And I want to call it mason jarring. But he, he, he does jarring with like foods foodstuffs right <laughs> i love food <laughs> me too man <laughs> and so but you know, if you have a whole basement full of these jars before you put anything in them you have to boil water and sanitize these things so that they're clean but if you boil the water and sanitize these these jars and then put them back on the shelf for a month they're not ready a month from now right and it, to me that was the perfect metaphor for minimalism because andrew's talking about how they sold all their stuff and then that would have been the first step. Getting rid of the clutter is the first step, but it's not the end result. Because you then have to figure out what to fill it with. Once you've sanitized your life, so to speak, you have to figure out what to fill it with. And, and then he filled it with some travel. He and his two toddlers and his wife went and took that six-week trip. And, and um, man, he, he's found more happiness in his life. And now that he's back in, back in Vermont and he has a different job, he, he's saying, okay, have my values changed? And he's asking us, Guys, did your values change once you embraced minimalism? And I think for me, uh, the short answer is no, but my priorities changed. So not my values, but my priorities. And also my beliefs change. I, I think of my beliefs as the pathway to get to the values. And, and that's why Ryan and I have radically different beliefs about religion and also about politics. But we have similar values. We get to the same place via different pathways. And I've recently been writing about this and thinking more about it as not just a, a, like a road pathway, but more like a waterway. And the water sometimes gets redirected as your beliefs change. If something just comes and plugs up the dam, then all of a sudden, your water is going to move in a different place. Your belief is going to change. You're still headed toward your values, most likely, but your values rarely change. They, they tend to solidify. And for me, my values with minimalism, once I got the excess out of the way, I was able to see clearer and, and more clearly identify what my values are and, and put it into practice and writing them down and then trying to live that life in accordance with, with my values. And now whenever I feel discontented, uh, I, I realize it's easier for me to determine why because I'm just not living up to my values. And so because it's easier for me to determine why, it's also easier for me to, to fix it. Maybe not easier. It's simpler for me to fix it because I'm able to identify what the problem is. And that's the, the first step in, in offering any sort of solution. Yeah, no, I totally agree, man. Uh, yeah, my values, again, the short answer is no. My values did not change uh, once I went down this, this path of, of minimalism and introducing this philosophy into my life what it helped me do is be honest with myself. It helped me to like look in the mirror and really get clear on like a, what my priorities are mm -hmm. and to act on, on those priorities. So, uh, no, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think my values uh, changed, but, but yeah, certainly, um, I just have a much clearer picture now of what I need to focus on. I was just thinking about this, man. Like I didn't know what my values were really. Uh, I mean, I probably could have rattled off some things yeah. that, that I would have said were a value. Yeah, you listen, oh, well, my health is important, obviously. Right, right. But yeah. I was 80 pounds heavier and I was eating fast food and and loaves of bread and yeah and i'm like oh my relationships are important but my mom lived a half hour away and i you know might have seen her like six or seven times a year yeah and it's yeah. i mean i didn't really do a good job of fostering relationships yeah lip service priorities we call it
Here's a clip from our episode with Rob Bell. We were in Los Angeles together and at the Belasco Theater downtown Los Angeles. And man, I always enjoy just listening to Rob talk because I learned so much from him and, and his regular podcast, which is called The Robcast. But then talking with him in person, I always feel like I learned something. I hope you do too. Hi, um, my name is Sam. And hey, Sam. I'm from Ventura, California. Welcome. I'm super nervous, so um, thank you. But um, I just wanted to start off by you guys have helped shape my life in like the past year dramatically. And the biggest thing that I've taken away is um, letting go of toxic people. And I think I've done an incredible job. I'm down to like three friends and I'm so happy about it. <laughs> and I've, I've never been happier with genuine people in my life. So my question is, um, I have a very toxic person in my life and they have an addiction. And my question is, is how do you divorce somebody when they're your parent? Mm. And they're bringing a toxic environment, not only to your life, but to, um, it's causing me to have a toxic relationship slightly with my husband, or, you know, it brings up some commotion, or it's holding me back from being a better sister, or even being a, the best daughter that I can be to them. And I'm having a really, really hard time with pulling myself away from somebody who's so toxic. So how do you walk away from somebody you will always love, but you don't want to be a part of that kind of environment? I'll start with a pithy answer, then I'll try to unpack it a little bit. Uh, the thing that I've learned over the years is that victims become victimizers. And, and so I had people in, in my life, for sure, that played the victim role repeatedly. and and um, dragged me down with them. And so we all hear the sort of platitudes of you are the, the five people you surround yourself with, your five closest friends, and, and that ends up being true. And so I think one way for you to, to remove yourself from that is to not run away from that, but to run towards something else and, and fi find relationships and people who are gonna be supportive, people with similar values. And, and I think that ultimately when you're, when you're dealing with someone who you've been so close to for a really long time, you, you can't help someone that doesn't want help. I guess my biggest fear is walking away and then losing them and not having that. I guess it's like how much do I give of myself to try and help them when I get, in the back of my mind I also know too that they can only help themselves. Yeah, so, so are you... Uh, do you, do you think this person will change on their own? I want to believe that they will. Sure. But I can't answer that. Only they can. Yeah. Well, well then, then I'll give you my, my short answer. It's one that you've heard before, probably. You can't change the people around you, but you can change, you can change the people around you. And, and I think you have to surround yourself with some supportive relationships and model. You have to model the behavior that you want to see from, from that parent. And, and in doing so, your great hope is that they will follow. I mean, the nice thing is a lot of people in my life from, from my 20s, they thought I was crazy and I had to walk away from that. But eventually, when I modeled the behaviors that I wanted to see in myself, they ended up following. Man, um, I'm so sorry to hear about your 
situation. I, Nobody's fault. No, it, it's it. not. Um, I just, I've been there. And, um, it sucks. Yeah, it does. Uh, man, I hate, I hate to like air out all my dirty laundry. Um, but like I have, I have a relative, um, I'll just say that, I have a relative in prison right now who is because of drugs. And they were in prison. They got out. I was helping them as much as I could, brought them out to my home, gave them some money to you know, start a new life with, and they ended up back in prison again. And when they did, they called me up and they're like, hey man, can you give me money for a lawyer? And I'm like, no, like I'm sorry, but I can't. I'm not willing to do that. Like I'm willing to write you, I'm willing to talk to you, I'm willing to support you whenever you want, but supporting you with, in a monetary fashion, like that's just, in my opinion, enabling you, and I've already done that, and it hasn't done anything for you. And that's not any knock against you, I just know that until you really, really wanna change, no matter how much money I give you, or, or stuff, whatever it is, until you really want to change, like nothing is actually going to change in your life. So I guess what I'm saying is, is um, even other family members, like they still, uh, they still don't get what I'm doing. They, you know, if I see them, they always got to make some kind of smart, nice orange shoelaces, minimalist. Like, I can't believe you have a colored shoelaces and um, you know, is, is that shirt adding value to your life? I mean, just constantly <laughs> take a drink. <laughs> and, you know, <clears throat> at the end of the day, like those family members, I do love them so much, but I will distance myself. And some of them have completely come around. And uh, my relative who's in prison right now, like I, we, we still have a good relationship there is nothing I can do to change, the, to change them. They're going to have to change themselves, but um, I will still be there for them. I would say don't, I don't think you have to walk, I mean, maybe you do, I don't know, this is just my two cents. I would say you don't, you, maybe you don't have to walk completely away from, from this relationship as much as distance yourself as much as possible. Still show them that you care and love them and support them in every way that you can, but don't ever support someone for the sake, or don't, <clears throat> this is my pithy answer. I got it. <laughs> don't go out of your way to support someone and forsake your own meaningful life. Thank you. Rob? Uh, some people, you have to love from a distance. And that means you're going to have to have a funeral for the parents and the relationship you wish you had. And that will involve grieving because they haven't been able to come with you. So the real question to ask is how much can you engage with somebody without losing yourself? 
And if you find that two hours of engagement takes you two weeks to flush the toxins out, or you and your husband have to do like a week of, am I crazy? Because they lobbed all that stuff. Like a Katy Perry melody, it got stuck in the front of your head. How many of you have somebody in your life who they know how to say something that gets looped in your frontal cortex and then it just plays on repeat? So here's the thing. You don't have to be around that. And, and the great heartache that's literally thousands of years old is what happens when you find yourself at odds with your own tribe. Maybe even the people who brought you into the world. Because your path has not continued on alongside their path. That's okay. And so the second you asked your question, I was like, oh, grieving. It's grieving. Think about it like I am grieving what I wish I had. And then you have to continue on your path. And maybe it means loving people from a distance. Here's something from our nostalgia episode, episode number 91 of the podcast. We talk about letting go of nostalgia and how nostalgia might be a little bit dangerous. Here's a question and answer from that episode. My question is about sentimental objects. Uh, To try to make a long story short, I met my husband in a bar in Georgia when I was 21. Um, I was living in Manhattan. I was just down there visiting a friend. And we really hit it off, obviously. Um, I went back to Manhattan. We were trying to plan him to come visit me. Um, But he was in the Army, and he got sent to Iraq. And he said, will you write me letters? And, of course, I did. And the whole time he was there in the invasion, we wrote letters back and forth. And I remember walking into my apartment building and how excited I would get just to, you know, open up my mailbox and see a letter from him. And we really fell in love to those letters. We've been married for 10 years. We have three-year-old twin boys. And I just know that those letters are a sentimental object I will never be able to get rid of. Like, scanning them just doesn't tell the whole story of having been from, you know, Iraq and Manhattan and back. Um, but I also know this opens us up to, like, the rabbit hole of wanting to keep, you know, the, the baby clothes my sons came in, you know, came home in. Like, one was in the NICU and he was so tiny and he's a strapping, healthy boy. And, like, I have that in my dresser drawer, um, the clothes he came home in. And then, of course, it opens up to, you know, letters from other people and starting to feel guilty. And I guess my question is, um, do you make room for sentimental objects that matter a great deal? And if so, how do you kind of stop the flood of letting that permeate everything else in your house that you attach value to? So, Ryan, do you make room for for sentimental items? Man, I mean, I have sentimental items. Um, I try to avoid holding on to sentimental items as much as possible. Um, God, she's already kind of went down the rabbit hole with the letters. Yeah. So now she's like, I think her question really is, is like, okay, I've got these letters. I'm not asking how I get rid of these letters. I'm not willing to get rid of these letters. They right. had a lot of value to my life, which is great. Um, and then she's asking, well, now we've got a kid mm-hmm. and I know that I'm going to want to hang on to stuff. Like how do I keep it from, uh, from overflowing? So, I, you know, I guess the first question, if I was Susan, I would ask myself, you know, how much room do I have for these things? Yeah. What's what what's the real cost of, right. of owning these things? Because right. the, there's no cost right now of of the, the the baby clothes are already paid for, right? So there's right. no the, there's no monetary cost for for purchasing those things at this point. That's a right. sunk cost. Right. But there are other costs involved Absolutely. with that. Yeah, you you the cost of the of, of space. 
Yeah. The cost of time it takes to organize these things, to take care of these things. The the cost of, uh, well, maybe if it does get out of hand, uh, the cost of new storage space. So it yeah. could turn into a monetary cost, potentially. It, 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 quite often, when, I mean, I have a friend back in Cincinnati we used to work with, and I remember he and his family, like, they bought a bigger house just because they didn't have enough space for their stuff. Unbelievable. And, and they were like really stressed out as opposed to letting go of the stuff that they were able to justify having a larger mortgage being tied to more debt just because they needed more space for the stuff, which by the way, he even acknowledged to me, he goes, I don't use most of this, but like, I just feel like we have to hang on to it and, mm. and we just need more space. And I'm okay with that. I'm not telling everyone that they should live in a tiny house. Of course not. We don't live in tiny houses. In fact, uh, the guy from Nightline who was out at our at our houses yesterday, uh, you know, our house is maybe 1,200 square feet. Uh, Bex and I, and it seems a lot more open than that. But it's not a, it's not a tiny house by any stretch. Mm -mm. Um, but it's what's appropriate for us, mm -hmm. and we don't have. Um, excess storage or anything i mean we got plenty of extra space that sure. we don't fill up but i don't feel compelled to fill every corner is is really the point right and so she used the word ryan that that i try to avoid with my stuff she, she said it has so much meaning or the yeah. meaning we attach to it and, and i think that's an important she, she's actually admitting that like the things have only as much meaning as you give them right and her letters that that were written I understand they mean something to her and I, I'm not judging that at all, no. but they literally mean nothing to me, but they could mean something to me if you allow uh, if, them if, to. if I allowed them to. Yeah. And so yeah, the, the thing I always think about is when something's too precious, I try to let it go. Mm. And, and be, just because when something becomes so precious, I become attached to it in an unhealthy way. Mm. And so the thing that I would ask is why am I giving so much meaning to these things? Because the things themselves, whether it's the letter or the baby clothes or whatever, those things don't necessarily have intrinsic meaning. They have right. only the meaning we've placed on it. Right. And that's not in and of itself uh, unhealthy. What it is, it gets unhealthy when we give it too much meaning, too much significance, too much importance. I couldn't live without blank. Right. My life would be terrible without blank because the truth is, no, it wouldn't. Right. Everything would be okay without those then the question that becomes, how do these improve my life? How do they augment my experience of mm. life? And maybe, just maybe, there's something she could do with these sentimental items that enhance her life as opposed to, because uh, right now the, you talked about having these additional costs. The biggest additional cost she's experiencing right now is the weight they have on her mind. Yeah, They're occupying the real space, the space in her mind. She's worrying about these things. Right. She is obsessing over these things enough to, to call into a couple of random guys from Dayton, Ohio that she doesn't know <laughs> so that, so that she, we can try to help her with it. So it's, it's become enough of an issue that she's worrying and it's occupying space in her brain. So how does one find the balance between holding on to everything mm. and 
incinerating everything. So yeah. where's the where's the balance between that? And that that's a good question because it doesn't. And that's going to be different for everyone too, right? Yeah, and often we think it's binary, right? Like right. I have to either hold on to it or I have to incinerate it, right? right. And, and the truth is, well, maybe there's something else you can do with it. With those letters, <clears throat> could you turn it into a really great art project? Yeah, where you a really have cool this, collage or yeah, or yeah. or a huge frame that you have in your bedroom that is filled with your your favorite selection of these letters. And mm-hmm. by the way, I do recommend even if, if you're not going to just scan them, I do recommend scanning them mm-hmm. because you're gonna f- it's going to it's going to occupy less space in your mind because you're not worrying about losing those letters anymore. Uh, uh, if you you and I, Ryan, we did a scanning party. People, we won't rehash the whole thing. You can see the scanner we use and exactly what we do with all our photos and stuff. Uh, Theminimalists.com/scanning. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But um, have a scanning party and go through those letters together and mm-hmm. then find the ones that evoke the most meaning and emotion when you're going through them and maybe you can turn it into some sort of art project whether you said it's a collage it could be a scrapbook mm-hmm. it could be a digital picture frame that actually it's a large they make large digital picture frames now that are eight and a half by 11 yeah and you can cycle through those letters on the digital picture frame you can set the timer so every 60 seconds it brings up a new letter and if they're private letters you can keep them in a private place just in your bedroom somewhere and and you can get more value from it that way than them just sitting in a box a shoebox in an attic or a basement yeah no i totally agree i i I think you know with susan it's i mean we're not well (laughs) we are just sharing our recipes so anything we say it's just that like it's our experience it's our ideas what we would do yeah but yeah but susan you can you know you feel free to do whatever you feel is best for you and your family if i was you i would when it comes to the baby clothes you know i would right now put a limit on so for me if it was myself my limit would be zero i'm not gonna hang on to baby clothes no me either because but, i find this with ella now when she grows out of something <clears throat> i get rid, get rid of, of it. it but susan if you know if it's uh if it's that important to you i would i would posit that it's not as important as you think it is but um you know like i said i don't want to sit here and tell susan what she should or shouldn't do um if she's looking for some type of guidelines on how to find that balance between holding on to zero baby clothes and and then holding on to everything, I would say like figure out what that limit is right now. First off, how much space do you have to store baby clothes? And if you do have space, then limit yourself to just that space. I mean, you know, holding on to a pair of baby shoes, a onesie, like if, if that's what you want to do, great. But put those put those rules into place now. So when you do find yourself with a heap of baby clothes in a trash bag, yeah. You're not just going to take that trash bag and then put it in the closet and hold on to everything. Like right now, decide what is your limit? What do you have room for? What do you have time for? I found for with with Ella, it's actually a good, uh, it's a good time for me to teach her as well. Because when she grows out of something, she knows that we go donate it. And instead of just saying we have to go donate this, we talk to her about why mm-hmm. she's donating it. Mm-hmm. And when when she goes to the donation warehouse with us or to Goodwill and and we're we're donating her old clothes, she says, "This is so other kids can wear it because I can't wear it anymore." She's oh, understanding awesome, that I didn't understand that at age four, right? But she's understanding that at age four, so it becomes this this you know, teachable moment that that we wouldn't get otherwise if we were just clinging to her to her stuff. Ooh, that's a great point, Sue. Man, is like so, Susan. What do you want to teach your kids? through this process. Oh, like, so what lesson do you want them to get out of this? Do you want them to, you know, uh, realize that 
memories are inside of us and we don't have to have a bunch of physical items to remind us of those memories or, um, you know, do you want the lesson to be, Hey, it's okay to hoard whatever you want to hoard. Um, and I know Susan isn't uh, a hoarder or turning into a hoarder, but, but yes, I would ask that question too. Susan is like, what do you want to teach your kids through this process? Well, here's a hot topic for the end of the year and especially going into the new year. We've wasted a lot of money this year, right? And quite often the reason we waste money is because we don't have a budget together. So we did an entire episode about budgeting. It was episode number 94. Enjoy this clip from that episode. I have recently been applying minimalism to my finances. I've actually created an Excel, an Excel sheet, which I thoroughly enjoy nerding out to as I fill it out. I, however, did not realize how much money I was spending unconsciously on eating out and random other items that do not add value to my life. Anyway, I'm wondering if you have any words of wisdom to encourage patience with myself and or how to speed along the process of developing and adhering to a realistic value-based budget. So, you know, I got excited when I heard the word Excel spreadsheet, Ryan. (laughs) No, I, I've I've stopped uh, using Excel. I'm so proud of her much. because I cannot, t- dude. My, um, I'll say a relative. I'm not going to call out the specific relative. Yeah, yeah. But they were visiting within the last year, and they were like, "I don't know what to do. Like, I need a car, and I got to do this." Blah, blah. I mean, you know, they're just laying out all their financial woes, and I'm like, "Do you have a budget?" And they're like, "No." I'm like, "Okay." I was like, "I'm not going to coach you anymore." until you come back to me with a budget. They still have not put a budget together. There are so many people out there who know they need a budget, have not spent the time to do it. That is, if you can't take the first step, then you're never going to become debt-free. Yep. So, Tira, just congratulations on putting the Excel spreadsheet together. That is an awesome first step. And it's a hard one because it makes you look in the mirror and it makes you be honest with yourself. Well, it's, it's scrutinizing too. Like, so in a weird way, I'm budgeting right now with my diet. So it talked about doing the, the ketogenic diet early on at the beginning of this episode. And the app I'm using, MyFitnessPal, it I budgets my, my calories. You know, so my, my daily objective is 2,300 calories, but I want to get over 70% of that from fat. And so uh, I find, I find that like I'm budgeting in a different way and it makes you scrutinize like, Oh my God, I did not know that a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar had you know, one carb in it or whatever. And, and so like, <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just having visions of me taking on this diet and freaking out of it about a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar. Oh like, dude. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're toast. Man. Right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail you. Keep going. Yeah, and no, I mean but the, like bacon. So I'm eating bacon now. Right. But bacon is cured with brown sugar, so like, I can't even really do much bacon. You think of bacon as this nice fatty thing that's going to help your fat. It does, but bacon is always cured with brown sugar. That's how you make bacon. Now, Josh, did you know that if you say beer can in an Australian accent, it sounds like bacon in a Jamaican accent? Prove it. <laughs> we don't have time. Keep going. All right. All right. Anyway, so I'm budgeting and my whole point is that once you start scrutinizing it down to the dollar level or the calorie level or the uh, micronutrient level, it it opens up this whole world of, you know, there's this old saying, you can't you can't manage what you don't measure. And I don't know that's always true, but I I think that it's it is so true for diet and especially for budgeting your dollars, knowing where every dollar is going throughout the month. Now, an Excel spreadsheet might be might be ideal for for Tira, but 
there is a really good app out there, and it's free, by the way. It's called Every Dollar. Oh yeah, that's it's Dave Ramsey's yeah, app. Yeah, Ramsey's app. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so I I used the paper version of it a very long time ago. And uh, that helped me. The whole envelope system that he uses helped me. But every dollar, it's a free app. And I think that it, maybe the Excel spreadsheet works great for you. And however you want to do it, whatever tool works best for you. But take a look at the different tools. See if, see if that one might, might help out. Now, Ryan, she said... How to help her with, her with patience. Well, she didn't realize how much money she was spending. Now, I would use oh. the word non-essentials. Mm. Uh, so how do you get down to that? How do you figure out what's essential and non-essential? Yeah, so, so you and I did something called the need, need, want, like list. But if I were to rename that today, because we did this a few years ago, um, the need, want, like list really identified the things that you truly need the things that you wanted that added value to your life and the things that you just sort of liked. Like, uh, yeah, I like the satellite radio or whatever. So how would you rename it? Essential, uh, non-essential? And junk. And yeah. junk. I like that. Essential, non-essential. We should go back and edit that essay. Or we can just, we can write another one eventually. Oh, yeah. uh, been writing a bunch on the website, by the way. You can subscribe to all the, the essays for free over at theminimalists.com via email. A I love of that, dude. Essential, non-essential, and junk. Exactly. That, that's essentially what it is, man. Like, yeah. Was that was that a pun? It was a pun. That's <laughs> essentially what it is. <laughs> yeah, and and so we were we were helping someone recently uh, declutter their home. We were doing it for a, a reporter uh, on BuzzFeed. This BuzzFeed video that we did when we were out um, in Los Angeles when we were out on tour and uh, helped her put things in the three piles. And now here's the thing: we justify everything. This is essential. Absolutely need it. But the truth is we need far fewer things than we think. And so if I were to look at my essentials, my non-essentials, and my junk, most of the things that I owned when I was 27 years old and I was simplifying my life for the first time, the vast majority, 90 plus percent was junk. It wasn't actually adding real value to my life. It was, there was some weird perceived value or I was holding on to it just in case in, in most cases, but I had to slash that. And so 100% of your junk has to go. Now, that's not just junk that you have at home. It's the new junk that we bring into our lives. And, and what I mean by that, it's not actually adding value to your life. It could be eating out at you know, Chuck E. Cheese, because that's where I go when I want to eat out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do they have a gluten-free menu? <laughs> I don't even know if they have a menu. Are there Chuck E. Cheeses in the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I just want to say your childhood wasn't lit unless you spent <laughs> some time at Chuck E. Cheese's. <laughs> don't ever use that word around me again. What, Chuck E. Cheese? <laughs> Yeah, man. Most of the stuff that we spend money on is junk. I mean, it's not adding real value to our life. But then there are some things that are non-essentials, but it's not junk. It, non-essential means it adds value to our life, but it's not absolutely necessary. And I found a way when I was first budgeting, this sounds crazy, I found a way to cut 100%, that's the temporary deprivation, 100% of those non-essentials. Give us some that, examples. Um, let's see here. So... Um, Ooh, ooh, ooh. So, so a lot of the bills that, that I was spending money on were home internet, cable TV, um, anything I was spending money on regularly, uh, music, um, things that, that weren't absolutely essential yeah, to my life. To going out to eat. Yeah, most of the going out to eat was junk. Um, but it, well, it, it, was, it was for them because, sure. it, because the, the need was eating, right? Right. And so 
Uh, maybe going out to eat with friends, yes. Th then I did get some value from it. Or yeah, I got some value because I didn't have to prep everything. But I did start making meals at home because eating is essential. So let's, let's just talk about essentials real quick. The essentials are things like having a roof over your head, having clothes on. Well, I already owned enough clothes. I didn't have to buy any new clothes. I can go shopping in my own closet and, and be completely contented by that experience. But uh, um, I found a way to cut down my essentials by 50%. I moved into a smaller apartment. I reduced my electricity um, and used the air conditioning less frequently. I mean, there were things where I'm like, I'm going to really squeeze every dollar that I have here. And I even reduced my essentials by 50%. Now, maybe... Maybe, uh, Tira, you can't, you can't reduce your essentials by 50%, but maybe you can reduce it by 20%. And you can get rid of all of the non-essentials right now, temporarily. Here's the cool thing about that, though. Once you become debt-free, you start bringing those non-essentials, but they still add value to your life. These are things that truly add value to your life. When you start bringing them back in, it feels so much better because you know you're bringing it back in deliberately. And you feel so much less guilty, man. Yeah. Like, that's the other thing, too. It's like, I was there when I was, you know, deep in debt, but I'm going to go out with a friend and have a meal, and I'd put it on my credit card. Right. And it was a good experience with my friend, and I did get value out of it, but, like, I would feel guilty. Like, here I am just putting more debt onto this debt card. Yeah. yeah. And, and now, the other thing that I realized when I started bringing some of those things back into my life, like, I started buying music again, and... And, and buying books and instead of going to the library. And I found that many of the things I thought were non-essentials were actually junk. Yeah. And I would say, oh, yeah, this adds value to my life. No, not really. No, it's actually junk. And so you don't bring any of the junk back into your life. So slash, slash, slash. Uh, you can find that essay. It's theminimalists.com slash want. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. One last question she had. How do I... How do I speed up the process? No, well, I think you just answered that. R right. Because slash, I, I slash, guarantee slash. right now, yeah. So, yeah, I was going to say, like, if I, if she was to lay out her expenditures, I guarantee you and I could find an extra 10, an extra 20 bucks a month, maybe an extra 100 or $200 a month. Right. But there, are, I mean, if she truly wants to speed up the process, get clear on what the essential stuff is, the non-essential stuff is, and... uh give it and give up as much as you can deprive uh, de temporarily deprive yourself. Yeah. I mean, dude, eating peanut butter and jelly and ramen noodles is a horrible diet, but yeah, but you can do the healthy equivalent to that. There is a healthy equivalent. Actually, we should actually start coming up with a healthy equivalent. We should get Bax to do that at minimal wellness. She's the dietitian. Yeah. So what's the cheapest, healthiest way to eat? Because that's one thing I hear a lot too. Well, it's too expensive to eat healthy. Nah, no. that's, that's a, total bullshit excuse. by the way it's too expensive to not eat healthfully yeah, it's, you know what it's too expensive if i go down to the fresh market right here in missoula and eat organic they're it's way too expensive i never buy like i go to the farmer's market right or i'll go to other places where i know that they have affordable organic stuff well when i'm saying it's too expensive to not eat healthfully what i mean is it's going to cost you in the long run oh yeah time, oh yeah time. it's good yes and so here's, here's what I'll say. She said, how do I speed up the process and how do I be patient? I don't want you to be patient. I want you to be upset about this. I want yeah. you to feel the pain. Be impatient about your debt. That's what I wrote down here. Be impatient with debt. Don't accept debt. Don't have patience with your debt. Be so impatient that you know you must make some sort of change. Get mad at that there debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely don't want you to be patient. And, and, and in fact, I, I want you to be so impatient that you... So the equation here is simple, Ryan. You have to make more money than you spend if you want to pay off your debt. Well, how do you do that? Well, 
First off, you spend less. You give The best way to give yourself a pay raise is to spend less money. If you want a dramatic pay raise, spend dramatically less money. But on top of that, once you've done that, you figure out how to make more money. Now for me, we didn't have Uber and Lyft back in the day, so I delivered pizzas and I felt like an idiot. I was working in the corporate world delivering pizzas but I was, I'm going to make some more money somehow and make a few hundred bucks more a week. I'm going to, how am I going to allocate my time so I can earn more income in the short term? It's not a long term plan, but what is your side hustle? And, and, yeah. and maybe that's driving with Lyft and, and any extra time you have, yeah, you got an extra, extra hour, five hours a week. Yeah. Like it's going to, that's an extra hundred bucks a week. Yeah. And so instead of pacifying yourself, find ways to schedule in that side hustle that you can make some short term money to pay off those debts. Yeah. So I would like to rephrase her question about being patient. Uh-huh. I think what she's asking is, is how can she stay more focused? Ooh. And what I'll say is focus on your daily tasks. Like don't look at what you're going to be spending next week or the week after. Like you, if you have your budget and after listening to this podcast, I'm, I'm assuming you have slashed, uh, even more of your expenses, stay focused on what you need to do daily. And then also do focus on that end result. Focus on being debt free. You have a light at the end of the tunnel. Do you know how many people don't even have that light to look forward to? So if you can, a, just take your daily tasks, your daily, uh, maybe your daily focus is a better way of looking. I hate the word task. Yeah. But, you know, take it on a day-to-day basis, one step at a time, one action at a time, and then stay focused on that end result. That is what is going to give you some, some, uh, some better focus and help you stay motivated to, to get to that, that light at the end of the tunnel. And finally, every year around this time, especially as January rolls around, I started to think of one of my best friends in the world, a guy named Stan Dukes. And uh, it's hard to even talk about, but oh man, about four years ago, he, he passed away really early. He was in his late 30s, and it was shocking and totally changed my perspective on life. And so Ryan and I, we try to acknowledge him at least once a year and, and try to inspire other people to live like Stan. Because even though he was young, When he died, he lived a life that was inspirational, and I'm grateful for the time that we had together. Here is a clip from that episode. And so January 2014 is is when he died, and I remember getting that news, and I was just, I was shocked. We we were just starting this tour, and... It was our first city. Yeah, it it was our very first city, and so I wrote an essay about it that the night I got the news... And uh, we put it up on our website. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I was hoping to read that. And then, Ryan, maybe you and I could have a conversation about the life that, that Stan lived and, and the lessons that we got from, from his life because his was a, a profound, albeit too short, life for sure. This, uh, this essay is called Live Like Stan. The traffic light hanging above our car is a blur of red. Tears are burning my eyes. Ryan is seated in the passenger seat next to me. He, too, is teary-eyed. It's the eve of our big, hundred-city book tour. The Florida sun has already set behind the Tampa Bay. Nightfall is upon us now. By the time the traffic light changes, it's just a mess of wet green, a shapeless emerald cloud spilling into the nighttime ether. I received the call a moment earlier. The news... A week after Ryan avoided his own death, which we can talk about in a moment. Uh, The week after Ryan avoided his own death, one of my closest friends, Stanley Dukes, 
is dead. This isn't going to be easy to write. Overwhelmed with unanswerable questions, I feel a canyon of sorrow. I can't see past the tears. He was only 36 years old, so I'm compelled to pin a thousand cliches. Life is too short. Every day is a gift. You never know when you're going to go, so live your life to the fullest. While these truisms are apt, the truth is that Stan lived more in his three and a half decades than most people could in a hundred years. Stanley Dukes was a Mozart of positive living, and so his attenuated life was not in vain. Of course, this doesn't erase the pain, but it makes it easier to handle. We met in the corporate world a decade ago. At first, when I was a regional manager, Stan worked for me as a store manager, but he was so talented. He added so much value to so many lives that I often felt as though I worked for him. Although he managed dozens of employees, his genius was most pronounced in his ability to inspire people who were not self-motivated, which, if you know anything about leading people, is sort of like convincing water to be less wet. But somehow, he did it, always carrying with him a smile and his positive mental attitude. As a result, he was one of the most successful managers in the entire company. Over time... We became close friends. We shared similar values and beliefs, as well as tastes in literature and movies and music. I traded him overwrought short stories for his hilarious, pseudonymous, erotic fiction. We exchanged lines from Glengarry Glen Ross characters, and we both shared a healthy obsession for John Mayer's music. We became so close that he is even the first person to make an appearance in my memoir, Everything That Remains where he pops his huge, lovable head into the very first page. And here's an excerpt from, from that book. Our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. I am seated in a cramped conference room, surrounded by ghosts in shirt sleeves and pleated trousers. There are 35, maybe 40 people here, middle managers, the lot of us, mostly Caucasian, mostly male, all oozing apathy. The group's median complexion is that of an agoraphobe. A Microsoft Excel spreadsheet is projected onto an oversized canvas pulled from the ceiling at the front of the room. The canvas is flimsy flimsy and cracked and is the shade of off-white that suggests it's a relic from a time when employees were allowed to smoke indoors. The rest of the room is aggressively white. The walls are white. The ceiling is white. The people are white, as if all cut from the same materials. Well, everyone except Stan seated at the back of the room. Cincinnati's population is 45% black, but Stan is part of our company's single-digit percentage. His comments, though rarely solicited by executives, are often dismissed with a nod and a pained smile. Although he's the size of an NFL linebacker, Stan is a paragon of kindness. But that doesn't stop me from secretly hoping that one day he'll get fed up with the patronizing grins and make it his duty to reformat one of the boss's fish-eyed faces. Of course, Stan would... Now we're back to the, the text here, back to the essay. Of course, Stan wouldn't have touched a hair on any of their balding heads. He was above that. He was above all the petty BS we get caught up in every day. He was above living life based on other people's standards. His standards were too high for that. 
He had character. Stan contributed beyond himself. Each year at Christmas time, he dressed up as Stanta and handed out gifts to our employees. He spent many off hours donating his time to soup kitchens and Habitat for Humanity. And last year, he founded a mentorship conference for young men ages 13 to 18. Stan cared. When I decided to leave the corporate world three years ago, he didn't flinch. Instead, he was the first to join me. We walked away together, guided by solidarity and a kinship that's impossible to manufacture. Before I moved to Montana, we met for coffee weekly. Our visits yielded heartfelt advice on women and life, as well as arguments over which John Mayer album was best. He said it was uh, battle studies, and I said it was heavier things. So I don't know if you agree or disagree with either of those, but (laughs) I feel that I'm right. Uh, Everything about Stan reflected a profound truth. Even his simple tweets were steeped in profundity. Here's a, a selection of some of his tweets that I have here. A man can't walk out of his own story. That one was like the most painful for me, Ryan. Like just, just it was. I think it was his final tweet, actually. Wow. Um, uh, let's see. Secure your own mask before assisting others. Uh, and he he lived that, by the way. I mean, he he helped other people first, or he helped him, he helped other people, but he he made sure his life was together first, and then helped other people rather. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> next tweet was: There's a bright spot in every shadow. Uh, next week was, it's the bitter and the sweet. I know the bitter, and that allows me to appreciate the sweet. Mm. Uh, next tweet, only your actions can prove your worth. They tell people who you are. And then uh, this other one here. This one was, was simple, but so true. Don't drown in conformity. And... Stan definitely didn't conform. It's the reason he decided to leave the corporate world yeah. uh, with me. Uh, let's finish this essay here. It's almost over. Uh, countless essays on this site were inspired by my conversation with, with Stan. Our final conversation was mimetic of his life. It was short but meaningful. Three days before Thanksgiving, I sent him a message. I said, I don't have to wait until th- Thursday to be thankful for you. I'm grateful you're in my life every day. To which he replied succinctly, thanks for that. Please know that I feel the same. Stan lived until he died. He truly lived every day. Not like most of us who walk through life like it's some kind of dress rehearsal, worrying about BS that doesn't matter. Nope. Stan was alive. One of the only people I know who didn't take this life for granted. If there's a lesson to be learned here, it's that, like Stan, we're all going to die. But few of us will ever be courageous enough to live as he did. Honest, well-rounded, passionate, positive, and constantly improving. Above all, Stan Dukes was good people. A man I aspire to live like. That green blur overhead is my signal to step on the gas, to wipe the tears and move forward. Perhaps you'll do likewise. I know Stan would. All right, we've come to the end of this episode, and I think the great way to finish it here would be to let Andrew Bell play us out. We were at a live episode of The Minimalist Podcast in Indianapolis, and we invited our new friend, Andrew Bell, who has one of the best albums of 2017. It's called Dive Deep, 
And that episode is number 93, and he played this live version of the title track from that album. So let's finish 2017 with a live version of Dive Deep from Andrew Bell. I hope you enjoy it. We'll see you next year, y'all. Listen, my dive deep. You have something that I want to keep. We get carried away. Don't stop. I've got nothing but time. Come on, yeah, you want to stop? Oh, I don't want to stay About your own your fire escape But you won't let me go I say just on your stereo We started a feed Started a tidal wave with a spark And I don't know you Are you sticking around? Are you just passing through? This is my
Thank you.